great personal pleasure for me to be able to introduce to you Dr. Daniel Block, Gunther Knudler, Professor Emeritus at Wheaton College. You have before you a brief list of his many accomplishments. Dr. Block is an internationally recognized scholar. He is a gifted and highly productive author, an inspiring teacher, and as you will hear, a compelling preacher. But above all these, he's a man with a passion for God. It's been my privilege to count him as my friend for some 30 years. We had met prior to our engagement as senior editors for the New Living Translation Project, he with responsibility for the Pentateuch and I for the prophets. But it was in that give and take atmosphere, spending some hundred hours a year together for 12 years that we got to know one another. I'll not speak for him, but for me, that experience was a highlight of my entire career. To spend hours around a table with 10 other men who loved the word and were highly trained in its interpretation, hammering out what we understood the text to be saying was an experience beyond price. In that context, I came to have the deepest respect for Dan Block, for his rigorous scholarship, for his courtesy in intense discussion, but at the same time, his passion for the Lord and his book, especially the First Testament. In knowing Dan Block, I have been inspired encouraged and challenged in my walk with the Lord. Thanks, Dan. I give you Dr. Daniel Block. This is a great honor and privilege and pleasure to be here among my friends. And Dr. Oswald, I will agree with you that that project working on the New Living Translation has been the most satisfying project of my life, trying to express in the language of the people the message of God. And it was such a delight there. But we have other friends among you too, and it's great to be with you, and I always feel at home. I think this is my third visit to Asbury, but uh, it's always a delight to be here. I feel so at home. It is a special honor to be asked to be the Lord's spokesperson this morning. But when we are done, I'm so glad that our brother read the whole Scripture the scriptures were not written primarily to be preached. Yes, I said that. <laughs> they were written to be heard, whole cloth. The scripture is the sermon. The text that was read is prophetic preaching at its best. 
forget everything I say, but don't forget what was heard through the Word. Well, there's obviously far more in the text that was read than we can handle in 30 minutes. So I would like to focus on the root causes of all that was wrong with Israel in the book of Judges. The book has a double introduction. The first introduction, chapter 1, 1 to actually 2, verse 5, which he read, the first five verses of which he read, the first introduction describes what was happening to Israel, and it is not a pleasant picture. Militarily, despite a few successes, successes initially, especially by Judah, overall the efforts of the Israelite tribes to claim the land assigned to them were failures. Socially and economically, some tribes allowed the Canaanites to live among them and conscripted them into forced labor. Some lived among the Canaanites, and some were forced out by the Canaanites. Politically, instead of reshaping the territory in distinctly Israelite terms, the Israelites formalized their relationship with the locals by making treaties with them, two, one to two. And spiritually, instead of destroying every vestige of Canaanite religion, the Israelites did the evil in the sight of the Lord, abandoning their gracious suzerain, becoming vassals of the Baals, and walking after the gods, specifically the fertility gods of the Canaanites, represented by Baal and the Ashtaroth, expressing their homage and submission to them by prostrating down before them. By abandoning the Lord and violating the covenant he had graciously made with their ancestors and refusing to listen to his voice, this nation had provoked the Lord's indignation and ignited his fury. But they had also repudiated his amazing works of grace on their behalf and abandoned the mission to which he had called them as the descendants of Abraham, Exodus 19, 4 to, 4 to 6. It's no wonder the Lord was angry. But how could this happen? This is the question I'd like to consider in some detail, more detail than I did in my commentary 20 years ago, and, and that I have, than I have observed in subsequent commentaries. It's obvious this is also the question of the narrator. In 2.7, he notes, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great actions that the Lord had performed for Israel's benefit. And three verses later, he adds, all in Joshua's generation were also gathered to their fathers. After them, another generation arose who knew neither the Lord nor the actions that he had performed for Israel's benefit. How could that happen? In Deuteronomy 4, 32 to 37, Moses had celebrated the unprecedented intervention of Yahweh, their God, on behalf of the Exodus generation. His love for the ancestors, his election of their descendants, his rescue of Israel from Egypt and their encounter with him at Sinai, nothing like this had ever happened before in human history and nothing like it had ever been imagined in human legend or mythology. 
And the great acts didn't end with the death of Moses, but they continued as Joshua led the Israelites in across the Jordan and with the Lord's miraculous deliverance of Jericho into their hands and the victories over the enemies, he granted them the fulfillment of his promises to the ancestors of the land. The statement that a new generation arose who did not know the Lord or the things he had done for Israel reminds us of an earlier narrator's word that a new pharaoh arose in Egypt who knew not Joseph. Nor, and we could add, or the things that Joseph did for Egypt and Israel as Egypt's prime minister. But how could the Israelites forget this so quickly and so totally? This is all the features of what... uh, psychologists call the amnestic syndrome. You've heard of that before. Clinicians define this as a mental disorder characterized by impairment in short and long-term memory with anterograde and sometimes retrograde amnesia occurring in a normal state of consciousness Disorientation, confabulation, and a lack of insight into the memory deficit may be present. That is so totally Israel. But how could this happen? Well, according to experts, the most common cause of this syndrome is thiamine deficiency. By now, you're really impressed with my (laughs) internet scholarship. (laughs) This deficiency is often associated with chronic alcohol abuse. But I doubt Israel's amnesia was merely a chemical issue. Not only were the experience of their ancestors awesome, unparalleled, unforgettable, really, but the leaders of the transitional generation, Moses and Joshua, had gone to great lengths to ensure that the Israelites would never forget the one to whom they owed their very existence. Israel's lapse into total amnesia didn't catch the Lord by surprise, nor would it have caught Moses by surprise had he still been around to witness it. In Moses' valedictory addresses preserved in the book of Deuteronomy, he spoke often of the importance of remembering and the dangers of forgetting the Lord and his great and gracious acts on their behalf. In fact, the verb, zakher, to remember, to take into account, occurs 15 times in Deuteronomy, usually in exhortations. Don't forget, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember the Lord's actions against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Remember the day you came out of Egypt. Remember the Lord's provision in the desert. Remember the Lord himself, the one who enables you to exceed in doing and confirming his covenant. Remember your convocation with the Lord in the desert. Remember the Lord's actions against Miriam, what the Amalites did to the Israelites, the nation's history. Fifteen times, remember, remember, remember. But of course, to these we should add ten warnings not to forget, which is the other side. So ten plus fifteen, twenty-five times. Don't forget what happened at Sinai at the time of the great assembly. Don't forget the Lord's covenant. Don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and who gave you birth. Don't forget how you provoked Israel or provoked the Lord in the desert. And don't forget the memory of Amalek. 
Now, although they do not use the language of forgetting and remembering in chapter 31, both the Lord and Moses anticipated that shortly after Moses' death, the people would quickly abandon the Lord, break his covenant, and lapse into idolatry. This is why before Moses left, and Joshua after, they put into place so many institutions of commemoration. Remember, and we could list these. First, Israel's annual festivals. Three times a year, all Israelite men were required and women were invited to participate in festivals at the central sanctuary that commemorated the Lord's great works of redemption and covenant. The festival of Passover, the festival of, uh, uh, of, of weeks, and the festival of booths commemorated God's great acts. Three times a year, the whole nation come together and celebrate. Second, the erection of memorials as witnesses to the Lord's great acts. Now, as far as I can tell, there were no permanent memorials on the, on the road between Egypt and the Promised Land, not even the place of Moses' death. Though if you go there now, you can see there is a church there. But... After they crossed the Jordan, what did they do? The first ritual act after crossing involved the erection of a 12-stone cairn in the middle of the Jordan and apparently another 12-stone cairn at Gilgal. And Joshua offered his interpretation of the latter. When your children ask their fathers in time to come, what's the point of these stones? Then you shall inform your children, Israel passed over the Jordan on the dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters and the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. So that even that memorial becomes a memorial to the crossing of the Red Sea. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you might fear the Lord your God. Ad Olam forever. This was the beginning of the book of Joshua, but at the end, apparently spontaneously, after Joshua had dismissed the tribes, you remember what the two and a half tribes did before they crossed uh, the Jordan to go back to the land that Moses had allotted to them on the other side. They built this massive altar, and the, and the other Israelites think that they've immediately fallen into paganism, and so there's a civil war that's about to break out, except that cooler heads prevail, and when they give them a chance to explain the meaning of this altar, they say, El God Yahweh, El God Yahweh. I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the most intense heaping up of designations for the Lord in all of Scripture. He knows, let Israel also know, if it was in rebellion or a breach of faith against the Lord, do not, do not spare us today. If this is actually pagan, then destroy us. Or if we did so to offer burnt or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord hold us accountable. No, we did it because we feared that in the distant future, 
your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? You live on the wrong side of the tracks. The Jordan River became a huge boundary immediately. You have no portion in Yahweh. So your children might stop our children from fearing or trusting in the Lord. Therefore, we said, let's build an altar now, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice, but to function as a witness between us and you and between our generations after that, us, that we also are authorized to serve as vassals of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is to prevent your children from saying to our children in the future, you have no portion in Yahweh. So they did it there spontaneously. So, memorials. Third, the provision of catechisms and creeds. Now, cast as a ten-statement document, one for each finger, the Decalogue could easily be memorized and function as a national covenantal creed. According to some traditions, it was recited every year as part of the covenant renewal ritual at the festival of booths in Jewish circles. But of course, this document begins with gospel, as it always does. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Don't forget... But we see the similar rhetorical device in Deuteronomy 6. Moses dictates what some have understood as a family catechism. I love this picture because it reminds us of some supper conversations we had when our kids were growing up. I'll never forget one time when in the heat of the moment we were talking about issues related to our, high school, our son who was in high school at the time. All of a sudden, he blurts out, why do we have to live in such a prehistoric family? <laughs> really? What a great question. No, no, of course, the tone is all wrong. But the question is deadly serious. He just opened the door for the gospel. Here it is. In the future, when your son asks, what's the meaning of the covenant stipulations, the ordinances, the judgments that the Lord our God has charged us to keep? Then you shall say to your son, we were pharaohs, slaves in Egypt. I didn't ask about that. I asked about the commands. Oh, shh. We'll get there. We were pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord shown signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt. I didn't ask about that. Shh. Patience, I'll get there. Before our eyes he did. And he brought us out and he, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to keep all our, these ordinances, to fear the Lord our God. Oh, finally we're there. For our good, always. To sustain our lives as it is, as is the case today. And he will declare us righteous if we keep this entire covenant charge by doing. Notice, he cannot talk about the significance of the laws without talking about the gospel first. The creed always starts with gospel. But of course, you have a similar thing in Deuteronomy 26, 
when the head of the household brings the first harvest of the field to the priest, he shall then recite, my father was a wandering Aramean. He went down into Egypt and sojourned there. Just a few people, but there he became a great nation, and the Egyptians treated us harshly. And when we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, he heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil and oppression, and he brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. He brought us into this place to give us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So look, I hereby bring the first fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. I thought this was a harvest festival. But no, it's a festival celebrating the faithfulness of God in giving birth to us as a nation. That's what distinguishes this from fertility religion. It is not about the crop. It is about the giver. Now, it's difficult to conceive how the Israelites could have lost the memory of the Lord and his mighty acts with confessions like these ringing in their ears. How could that happen? Fourth, the provision of a national anthem. Now, with debates about anthems revolving around Colin Kaepernick and the NFL you probably will dismiss my designation of Deuteronomy 32 as Israel's national anthem. That's anachronistic, and I suppose in some senses it is, but it's clear from chapter 31 that this is how it was supposed to function. The Lord instructed Moses to teach this song to the people that they might sing it and teach it to their children in perpetuity. But did you notice the, con the, the context? The Lord said to Moses, you're about to die. They need a song to replace you. He doesn't replace Moses with another person. The reason is, once they've crossed the land and taken over the place, that person can't be everywhere at once. But the song can. And so chapter 32 is a glorious song of celebration of the Lord's past graces, a song of warning of the consequences of forgetting those graces, a song of judgment for going after other gods, and a song of hope for Israel's ultimate restoration. As Moses had declared in his addresses, Israel's history cannot end with judgment. It will end in restoration. This song was probably sung at national festivals, I am sure, but it was also to be in, intended to, be, to ring in the ears of the people from the lips of the Israelites wherever they went, out in the fields sowing and harvesting grain, in the kitchens preparing meals, out in the hills herding livestock, and on the road peddling their wares. This song assumes people are what they sing. This means that if people stop singing this song and replace it with the songs of the pagans around them, things will change fundamentally and the memory of the Lord's past graces will be forgotten. Fifth, the provision of a written scripture, the Torah of Moses. Now, this is undoubtedly the most important resource of all, and 
We can scarcely overestimate the significance of 31, 9 to 13. When Moses had finished talking, he wrote down this Torah, handed it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant, and to all the elders. At the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the festival of booths, when all Israel comes to see the face of the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this Torah before Israel, all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and keep all the words of this Torah by doing them, and that their children who have not known it known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Did you hear this? Read, that they may hear, that they may learn, that they may fear, that they may listen, that they may live. Every seven years at the festival of booths at the central sanctuary, the whole people was to hear the whole gospel, the Torah of Moses. Of course, if we interpret the word Torah as law, as most people do, this statement will be interpreted primarily as a warning. Fear then means watch out for the consequences for disobedience. Ah, but if we interpret the word Torah as it is actually used in the book, it goes a different direction. You see, the word Torah doesn't mean law. As used in Deuteronomy, it exhibits exactly the same semantic range as Greek, didascalia or didache. In fact, as written text, it signifies this scripture. And when used of Moses' final addresses to his congregation, it represents a transcript of prophetic preaching at its finest. In this book, Moses does not pose as a legislator. He poses as a prophetic pastor teacher, pleading with his congregation. These are his farewell addresses, his last church service. I'm out of here. Don't forget, he pleads with them to stay true to the Lord. He does include warnings of the curse if they go off track, but the center of gravity all the way through is gospel. Don't forget the gospel. But how would hearing the Torah promote faith in the Lord, which is how I interpret the word fear in this context? In this chapel address, I cannot discuss that issue fully, but if we hear the voice of Moses in Deuteronomy, if nobody had ever called this Deuteronomy, second law, and if you've never heard any teaching on Deuteronomy before, but you just heard Deuteronomy reduced to your English and then read aloud expositorily, it's gospel you would pick up. How would hearing the Torah promote faith? Well, first, in the Torah of Moses, the Lord is portrayed in gloriously transcendent terms, pointing to a trustworthy deity. The concluding song of Yahweh opens by ascribing greatness to him. And then in 
uh, with a great doxological description, 32 verse 3. In 721, the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God, which means he can do it. There is nobody who stops him from doing anything. He is able. Second, the Torah portrays Yahweh in graciously personal terms. Moses seeks to inspire confidence in the Lord by highlighting his passionate affection, chashak, for the ancestors and Israel, his compassionate character, and lacing his addresses with stories of past grace all over the place, including the story of the golden calf. If Israel survived that, it is all grace. And they did survive. And then third, the Torah portrays the Lord as faithful to his word. The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just justice. The faithful God lacks in iniquity. Righteous and upright is he. He is always faithful. And this echoes 7-9. The Lord your God is God, the faithful God who maintains covenant loyalty with those who love him and keep his command to a thousand generations. Hearing the Torah, would remind the people of all of these graces, hopefully evoking in them not only fear in the sense of awe, but especially in the sense of confidence in the one who has chosen them to be his treasured people. In fact, we could highlight the importance of hearing the Torah by adapting Paul's rhetorical strategy involving a series of questions in Romans 10, 14 to 15. You know that text, how shall they hear without a preacher and all the rest of that chain that he has. But here, how shall they live if they do not obey? How shall they obey if they do not have faith in Yahweh? How shall they have faith if they have not learned of him? How shall they learn of him if they do not hear the Torah? And how shall they hear the Torah if no one reads? It's important. The end goal is life, that they may live. Where do you start? The Torah. And six, the appointment of leaders with special responsibility to keep the people on track. I'm, I'm fascinated by the chapters 16, 21 to 18, 22, where he introduces different officers in Israel's administration. Judges, of course, to see to it that tzedek, tzedek, kirdov, righteousness, only righteousness you all pursue. But all of these leaders are instruments of righteousness. The king, whose primary duty is not to lead in battle or to administer justice in the courts or, or to build temples for God. The king's primary obligation is to read the Torah for himself. Nobody in Scripture, well, yeah, Joshua. Rarely in Scripture are people invited, charged to read the Scripture for themselves. Levites read it for others. We hear it. But the king must read it for himself, that he, his heart be not lifted up above his countrymen, that he neither turn to the right or to the left, but stay on track with God. The king is the embodiment of righteousness. And when you see the king, you should know and remember what the proper response to God's graces look like. 
I want to be like Mike. That is the role. But of course, you also have prophets. The Lord promises the prophetic institution, uh, institution of prophets whom he will raise up to keep people on track, and the judges, and in the end, of course, the Levites. The Levites, who were instructed to teach Torah to Israel, to place incense before them, and hold burnt offerings on the altar. But have you, have you ever contemplated the significance of the 48 Levitical cities. Think about it. Why this? And of course, in the scriptures, the emphasis is on they have Levitical cities, but they don't have land. And so these become dormitory towns for Levites. But why do we need Levitic Levites scattered all over the country? I have a feeling that they are there for pastoral duty. That's an anachronism too. But their function is to be sure that the people are pastored in the regions where they live. Life happens. And you can't maintain a people's faith only with three festivals out of a year coming to the central sanctuary. It happens at home, in your homes and in your communities. And there's where the Levites are supposed to be teaching Torah keeping the people on track with God. But of course, when you read the rest of the book of Judges, you discover the abysmal failure of all of these. If I were now a perfect interpreter, I would have seven institutions. I've only got six for you. I could have scrounged around for a few more, but that will do. When you read the rest of the book of Judges, you discover what a total disaster it was. There arose a generation that knew not the Lord, that nor the things he had done, despite all of this. And of course, exhibit A and B and C are provided in the last chapters, which are often interpreted as appendices. No, they're not. They are the heart. They show what's happening on the ground. Chapter 17 and 18 provides the best illustration of the problem. The account opens hopefully uh, with introducing a man by the name of Micah. I love that name, Micah Yahoo. Who is like Yahweh? Thoroughly orthodox. We don't know the name of his mother, but we are encouraged that when she blesses her son, she says, I bless you by Yahweh. That sounds okay. I suppose there's merit there. But many of elements of this picture are so wrong. Why did the son steal from his mother and then return the goods only when he heard the curse was on the thief? That's fear of consequences. Why does his mother commission Micah to get an idol made with the silver she had dedicated to Yahweh? And why does Micah fulfill her request and establish a full-blown cult center in his home, complete with shrine, image of the deity, teraphim, and a consecrated priest, his own son? This is truly a picture of everybody doing what's right in your own eyes. We don't need a king to show us how to go into evil. Each of us can figure it out on our own, and this guy is doing it. And then there's the Levite, who shows up. And the text tells us he is going wherever he could find. Find what? 
There's no object to that. Find a job. Find somebody who would take him and somebody who would feed him. Find something significant to do, a meal, a host. No, he was a, a parasite, a leech. And by leaving him unnamed, the narrator invites us to generalize him to all the Levites. A typical Levite. A laid-back Levite. Wherever. He comes from Minnesota. Whatever. That's where he is. No sense of calling at all. And then he lands up in Micah's house. And Micah says, wow, what, what a stroke of luck. I now have my rabbit's foot. It obviously had bothered him that he had ordained somebody, but that guy wasn't a Levite. But now that I have a Levite for a priest, the Lord will bless me. Really. And then the Danites. What do they do? These are a bunch of thugs. They steal the priest. They steal all the cultic appurtenances that were in Micah's house. But did you notice their argument to the priest? Which is better? Sounds like a pastoral search committee. To be the prophet of a family or to be the prophet of a whole tribe. Oh, which is better to be the pastor of a little country church that's struggling or be a pastor of a mega church? That's a no-brainer. Except we don't realize how Canaanite that argument is. And in presenting that argument to candidates, we have stooped to the Canaanite ethic. But I suppose the real bombshell happens right at the end in chapter 18, verse 30, when we discover who this Levite is. And he's introduced them by name. In fact, it's so offensive to our Jewish friends that in the text they change the name. This Levite turns out to be none other than Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses. Our Jewish scribes inserted a little superscripted nun there to change Moshe to Manasseh which makes good sense because Manasseh was a horrible king. They changed it. But it's Moses, John, Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses. Really? Amnesia in the grandson of Moses. Wow. This last observation on the Levites may be the most significant for us here this morning. To be sure, Along with our people, we need always to guard against the dangers of spiritual, the spiritual amnestic syndrome, lest we forget. Knowing the fickleness of the human heart and our proneness to forget our Lord on the night he was betrayed, instituted a prophylactic institution against this syndrome. Now, the importance of the Lord's Supper for God's people cannot be overstated, a significance reflected in the fact that the institution of this observance is recorded four times in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't tell us much about what we should do in worship. But what it tells us emphatically is, as often as you gather, this is my body this is my blood. 
Do this in remembrance of me. Why? To ensure that we never forget the grace that God has lavished on us through Jesus Christ. If we do, we are doomed to commit the same mistakes the Israelites made in the book of Judges, abandoning our Savior, going after the gods of our land, gods of our own imagination and our own creation. Which is why gathering to break bread is the most important thing we do as a community, more important than beginning our worship service with music. The Bible never tells us to do that. I'm not saying we shouldn't. It's not mandated. More important than declaring God, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. Nobody in Scripture would have sung that song. Nobody does. You never have the verb, I have, to love, covenant or committed to, with a first-person subject. Not once. But we enjoy doing that, don't we? It's how narcissistic we are. When we are the subject of our sentences, we are singing about ourselves. When our song should not be about how much we love Jesus, but about how much He loves us. That's what this gathering does. We gathered here for chapel at Asbury Theological Seminary have a special vested interest in hearing the message of the book of Judges. For like the Levitical priests of ancient Israel, the Lord has charged us with responsibility of keeping alive the memory of God's grace among the people whom He has called us to serve which is why, above all, we must embody the righteousness of God. We must walk in His ways. We must model before our people the kindness and grace of our Savior. But we must also proclaim to them the good news of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, embodied climactically in Him. There is no other gospel. Just as in the days of Malachi, the priest, uh, the, when people look to the priests to see what it meant to revere God and stand in trusting awe of his name, to receive instruction in the Torah, to hear only righteous speech, to see what it means to walk with God in peace and righteousness and to turn many back from iniquity. So they're looking to us. Unfortunately, in many places, we who are called to the ministry have betrayed the calling we betrayed the Lord. We betrayed his people with our own twisted teaching and self-indulgent lifestyle. We've corrupted the covenant of Levi. Too often as we've witnessed in our own backyard in Barrington, Illinois, we have little sense of divine calling and are more concerned about filling buildings than purifying the people. And the memory of God's grace proclaimed from one end of the Scripture to the others has been eclipsed by modern adaptations of ancient fertility cults. For, those, for this reason, we need to rediscover the Deuteronomic formula for life. Proclaim the gospel that people may hear that they may learn, that they may fear, that they may listen, that they may live. 
which is to say that in the end they may all hear the Lord's well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will put you in charge of much. Come and share in your master's joy. May God have mercy on us and give us renewed vision of the privilege and burden of keeping alive the memory of his grace in the church. Its future depends on you. Never forget.